it's cruise control, except the motorway is covered in boulders and sand <laughs> You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Cosmic Cast, brought to you by the Earth and Solar System Group at the University of Manchester. You're here with me, Ricky. We're here with John. Hello. Fisher, uh, Marissa Lowe. Hello. Uh, Elliot Carter. And we've got a great guest for you all today. We've got Dr. Elliot Sefton Nash. Hello. And this is actually your second time we've had you on. We could, we saw you in person the first time. And mm-hmm. was it, was it two years ago now? Or is it only just oh, over a year, a year ago? You just over a, a year, year ago, ago now. Yep. Yeah. I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> Most people try to force it out of their mind. Uh, That's true. Yeah. It's often common yeah. to forget. Yeah. These days, time is, is much more abstract than usual. Well, <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. So I, I take it you're in lockdown as well? Yep, yep, very much. Um, it's been kind of a blessing, kind of a burden. Uh, it's one of those like, oh, this could be a mini sabbatical, but then it turns out to really not be that because there's all kinds of excuses to actually be more productive than, than yeah. if you are on site. Uh, so just so the listeners know, you, you work at STEC, which is the European Space Agency's department in the Netherlands. Uh, yeah. And your position currently there is? Well, my job title is a planetary scientist. Um, the role is a project scientist. So you're basically the interface between the, the projects that build and operate the spacecraft and the science community who get the benefits from it. Um, so it's kind of like a meta science diplomat science type role but uh, you find yourself in the middle of a lot of situations pushing in all directions and have you been having to do a lot of uh, management at home at the moment then with people yeah well and it's also quite a tricky um interface in many directions because you're not necessarily managing people directly but you Mm. kind of have influence in some ways so you have to try and figure out how to convince people or show them some evidence that what they're suggesting is a good idea or a bad mm-hmm. idea and you know um but yeah i mean you know my my day is at least 50 percent meetings so mm-hmm. i am no stranger to zoom mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> how are you finding that because we find even at our department uh i have very few zoom meetings i imagine compared to you very very few and i find them exhausting they are uh, yeah yeah so yeah, they can be. Uh, but yeah, I think you can get you can get you know WebEx or Zoom fatigue. Mm. Just the process. It really ruins wearing headphones for me. <laughs> when I want to listen to music, I'm like, oh, this means work. You know. Um, yeah, and it's difficult as well because you don't necessarily have the face to face interaction. You can't just you know stand by the water cooler, have a coffee, and have a mm. casual chat. There's no bar afterwards. You know, there are other kinds of tragedies associated. Mm-hmm. But these are obviously, you know, very minor problems compared to the, the global pandemic that is uh, yeah. making its way through the world. So. Mm-hmm. Like we, I think we probably, you guys as well, consider ourselves quite lucky that we can do at least some work at home, even mm-hmm. if uh, your labs aren't fully operating. Yeah, yeah, definitely a good time to catch up on papers. Um, so yeah. are things starting to reopen again now? Yeah, and I think a lot of big departments, big agencies are trying to be much more careful Mm-hmm. Um, than the average. They're kind of waiting to see what happens with the various governments, particularly ones who operate in multiple countries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't want to take an approach that's any more risky than any one of their member countries. So ESA is you know, no uh, no exception there. 
-hmm. we've got this target of having I think about 50% of people back by the end of September or something but okay. but even then the you know the necessity of that really depends on what your job is yeah I am not an essential person to be on site so I expect mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be mm -hmm. at home much longer than September mm -hmm. presumably it's all the sort of mission control people and a lot of the engineers and all the lab-based people then that'll be primarily yeah there. it's mostly people doing stuff in labs or doing testing yeah um, I think actually some of the operations and some of the mission control stuff is you can actually do off line okay. I mean if you can send commands to a spacecraft that's millions of kilometers away then <laughs> why can't you a few miles can't you just be yeah. 10 kilometers away from your office and still yeah. do the same thing so, quite a thing nice. to do in your pajamas isn't it <laughs> yeah so uh, how have different projects been affected uh, by lockdown then yeah what so you mean missions yeah yeah the ones that you've been working on yeah i think it, I guess for context, we should say, I guess you're working mostly on a lot of Martian missions, aren't we? Um, uh, yeah, I'm kind of a mixture, although I'm transitioning to mostly do Mars stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so as of Monday, uh, sorry, Wednesday this week, actually, um, I'm no longer the, the primary project scientist for Prospect, which is NASA's yeah. payload for uh, uh, looking at lunar volatiles uh, at the poles of the moon, and it's scheduled to fly on the Russian Lunar 27 and uh, um, and there are also now some discussions about you know how could prospect potentially um, interface with the NASA commercial efforts to go back mm -hmm. to the moon and send people eventually. So um, so somebody's taking on prospect, and I'm I'm working mostly on ExoMars now, mm -hmm. um, but I also support uh, MMX, the JAXA mission to go and look at the Martian moons. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, right now I'm really focused on trying to get ready for XML's regular operations, which may seem like a long time in the future, but there's a lot to do. Yeah, it's had a bit of a strange timeline, hasn't it? Um, with the, I've seen a lot of um, excitement on and off of launch dates coming up and then being pushed back. Yeah, you know, it's the, the perpetually forward-moving launch date is just the, the scourge of the space industry. And it's it's extremely difficult. Whenever you launch, there are always going to be things that you never had time to do. You know, it's like writing a paper. It's, it could always be better, however long you spend on it. Um, mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where you have to really try and keep check of the things that are critical to whether the mission is going to actually work or not. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, as you know, the most recent delay was from uh, 2020 to 22. Um, and, you know, that came after a long a long set of investigations that were incredibly carefully considered, you know, a long time before anybody was talking in the, in the public sphere about mm. the potential shift to 22. There were already very detailed reviews underway to try and figure out if all the different parts of all the different systems could really be, you know, counted on in terms of their development and testing. Mm -hmm. um, so there were many factors contributing to it. And then in the end, COVID-19 came along and that was just the icing on the cake that mm -hmm. really kind of, if it wasn't already heading towards the edge, it definitely pushed it over the edge. So, but 22 actually makes it a lot more, uh, a lot more tenable from a science planning perspective as mm -hmm. well. Certainly I'm grateful for the time. Mm -hmm. This might be a really like simplistic question, but how do you know when it's ready? <laughs> yeah, like, sure. I've had that trouble. You, you mentioned papers and that's hard to know. Like, how do you know with a rover? 
you stick a skewer in it and if it comes out <laughs> you're ready yeah you don't you don't have a rover meat thermometer you mean <laughs> everybody had those it's yeah you basically have to set boundaries that are meaningful um you know when you design a test and this is something that the industrial partners do um day to day they design a test okay how do you record the outcome of the test what does that outcome mean what's the confidence with which you believe that outcome um and so all that has to be really characterized in detail and documented and then when the tests are done and the results come back you can say okay this is an acceptable risk because in the end it's all about what risk you're willing to take mm -hmm. You know how how much money are you willing to put on the line to, uh, <laughs> to when you launch this spacecraft if it costs a billion euros, for example? Yeah. So, what do you think you'll be doing with this two years then? Now that we've got another two years before it's actually going to launch. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think you know some of it, Ricky. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't give involved. away the movie magic, Elliot. <laughs> um, well, so there's a lot to do in terms of. Um, the science planning side of things. Uh, one of the big efforts that I'm trying to work on is developing testable hypotheses that we can then use to plan operations. So we know where we're going. It's uh, Oxia Planum, a very flat but very interesting place on Mars. And we need to understand what, what features, what rocks, what mineralogy is there um, in terms of what that means for the, the mission's science objectives. So the rover mission has science objectives uh, about astrobiology and about um, characterizing the subsurface. Um, but the primary objective is, is looking for signs of past or present life. And so whatever measurements we do have to be in aid of that objective. So how do we know if we're following the right direction? Well, we have to, okay, first thing we should do is figure out what rocks are there. So we need to make a geologic map. Uh, once we have the map, then we have to figure out what other hypotheses about oxyoplanum that would tell us something about whether or not there's past or present life. So which rocks should we sample? Once we know which rocks we should sample, then we can figure out, okay, if we land here, what's the probability that we'll be get to sample this rock, you know, in the first 10 souls of operations or something. We basically then have to do this whole process of weighing up all the possible traverses um, based on all the possible landing very precise landing positions and, uh, and come up with a plan so that when we come to land, we'll be able to say, okay, we're here now. So we know that if we go in this direction first, that gives us the highest probability of making some interesting discovery in the shortest time with the shortest power, with the least amount of data, stuff like that. I guess, so, is, there, is, there, is there a bit of tug of war between the different instruments and, and all the different PIs on different instruments in terms of who gets the amount of time? And uh, I'm, I'm sure like some people would want more time, some people would want less time. And that's a bit of, uh, it's quite, it's quite difficult to try and distribute uh, an analysis time evenly across all, uh, across all instruments. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of part of, the role, I think. Mm. I think it's probably a, a fair statement that that principle that whenever resources are scarce, everybody wants a piece. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and rover time uh, in terms of power or number of measurements you can take is, is definitely no exception. So I think the way, one of the ways at least the project scientists, um, Jorge Vargo and, and I are thinking about managing this is, is you know, this is one mission with one set of science objectives and it has one science team. It's not about your instrument or the mm -hmm. other person's instrument. It's about how do we answer this question most mm -hmm. efficiently. So it, it really is making everybody a team. 
player. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the mechanisms that we can demonstrate that that's important is by having you know this map and this set of objectives that are mm-hmm. traceable, because mm-hmm. then we can say, okay, well, it's clear that if we go there first and measure this rock with that instrument, we've got the best chance. So we should mm-hmm. do that. Yep. And you know, everybody in this room was part of the process, so uh, you know, we all had a hand at it. Um, so what are the main instruments that are going to be landing there then? Would you mind talking us through the, the main experiments that are going to be done? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, the rover um, is not on its own. It gets, it gets delivered to Mars on the, uh, the Russian surface platform, which is called Kazachok, uh, which means little Cossack, I'm told. Um, so the platform itself has, uh, I think, 13 instruments. Uh, and actually, I don't think I can name them all. <laughs> but the rover has nine instruments. Uh, so that, yeah, let's start from, I guess we'll start from the cameras. So um, the, the, the most visible thing that you would see when you, you know, see a news article about Mars is some pictures. And usually that's taken by a, a some high resolution or panoramic camera. Uh, and the ExoMars rover called Rosalind Franklin uh, has PanCam, which has several different uh, channels, it has a wide angle and a narrow angle part. Um, and basically that will take the pictures that we will use for uh, kind of navigating and also for science operations. Um, there are also navigation cameras and location cameras with NavCam and LogCam. And there are pairs of those for doing the autonomous navigation that the rover does. Um, those, are not, those are not designed for science, they're more for the kind of operational side of things. Uh, so then there's, um, then there's an instrument called ISEM, which is an infrared spectrometer, which is co-pointing with the PanCam camera. So wherever you take a picture, you can also take an infrared spectra and look at the mineralogy of wherever you're pointing. Um, so if we go down to the subsurface, so the rover has a drill and the drill samples down to about two meters. Um, and the idea with that is that the best chances of organic molecules being preserved are at depth because they're not exposed to cosmic rays. They're not exposed to the very oxidizing surface chemistry uh, and the the daily thermal cycling and so on. So um, there's an infrared spectrometer in the head of the drill itself. So as you drill down, you can take infrared spectra of the borehole that you make. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's it's quite snazzy. Yeah. And um, when you get the sample back, uh, you can then take it into the inside of the rover. It's called the Analytical Laboratory Draw, uh, ALD. And that has three, has three instruments. Um, but before it gets there, it gets imaged by a, a, a very um, kind of like a geologist's hand lens. It's an instrument called CLUPI. Um, it stands for Close Up Imager. And then it goes inside the Analytical uh, Lab Draw. Um, it gets basically processed there's a whole sample handling system uh, the sample gets crushed and then dosed uh, into uh, different ovens um, before it's dosed in the ovens it gets imaged by uh, an instrument called micromega which is an imaging spectrometer in infrared um, and also um, a raman spectrometer with rls um, then there's also the option of it being analyzed by um, one of the kind of flagship instruments called MoMA, the Mars Organic Molecule Analyzer. And that's really where we learn about the, uh, the composition that's relevant for past or present life. 
Um, so it gives you all kinds of molecular abundances, um, the chirality of the molecules, um, there's all kinds of fancy stuff. And two other instruments of interest are, there's a, a radar, subsurface radar, where we can basically try to get the structure of the subsurface as we rove along. Uh, and there's also a, a neutron spectrometer, which tells you something about the, the hydrogen content of the subsurface, which is obviously very closely linked to water. So I think I covered the nine, I'm not sure, I wasn't counting. <laughs> that sounds really cool. So, so I guess some of the American rovers have been operating for years now. Is there an anticipation that this might go on for maybe like 10 years or so as well? Or is that funding dependent? Yeah, it's always funding dependent. Um, I think what you know, what you can say is that there's a nominal mission, which has a very specific set of objectives. Yeah. And the rover has been designed around that. And so all of the operations sequences and all of the hardware components um, are designed at least to meet the nominal mission. But of mm -hmm. course, they build in margins so that it should last much longer than that. Um, whether or not an extended mission is funded or not depends on the member states of ESA saying, yeah. yes, we want to keep funding the rover because it's doing amazing science. Uh, or maybe they have other priorities. Mm -hmm. So that has to come, and every mission goes through these cycles. Um, mm -hmm. And NASA missions have the same process. Yeah. You have to write a proposal for a mission extension, and then it has to get evaluated, and then some high-level committee gives a thumbs up or not. But usually, if you've spent inordinate amounts of money um, sending a rover to Mars, you want to keep it running as long as possible. Yeah. So I'm confident there'll be extended missions. Yeah. That's really cool. Do you think you'll get to go to the launch? Is it presumably it's being launched in Kazakhstan? Yeah, I'm actually not sure uh, if I'll get to go to the launch site because there's a few places you could be. Um, the Because the rover will be controlled from what's called the Rover Operations Control Center uh, in Turin. Mm -hmm. But the spacecraft is before, before that control center takes over. The spacecraft is controlled by uh, ESOC which is an ESA center in uh, Darmstadt in Germany, where they fly all of ESA spacecraft. Um, some people will be at the launch site, <laughs> but they will probably be events at all of those places. So I'm yeah. actually not sure which one I'll go to. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a good situation to have too many well, parties, quite. right? <laughs> so, so we said you can already obviously plan out the map and uh, you can plan out which outcrops you think would be ones of interest to actually drive to and take samples of. But in terms of once the rover's landed, how, how quickly or how long does it take for the next day to be planned of operations? Is it already pre-planned? We know where it's landed now. Or is it a day-by-day -day type of um, activity? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the first thing that happens after we land is there's the, a period of time called uh, post-landing to egress. And that's basically where everything gets checked out in a really specific sequence. Um, the rover is still on the platform at the start and it has to deploy all these things and make sure it has enough battery power mm -hmm. to get off and all kinds of things have to happen. So that takes about 10 miles days. Um, and then once we're off, there's a few other things that have to happen in terms of commissioning instruments and making sure everything works on its own. Um, but the nominal operations is basically a process that revolves around the uplink and the downlink of data to and from the rover. So when we get data back from the rover, um, immediately everything sets into motion and there's what's called a, a tactical shift. And the tactical shifts are, um, there's a primary one which happens straight away after the downlink. And that's when everybody is 
you know, in action, okay, processing all the data, looking at all the new stuff that's come back and basically identifying um, new targets, new things that we might want to send mm. uh, for the rover to do in the uplink, which comes, you know, a few hours later. So then there's that first tactical shift, which basically gets to an endpoint and there's lots of discussion. There's lots of each instrument team will have their own priorities and there has to be several meetings where we boil down what's called an activity plan. Then the activity plan has to be kind of validated and verified to make sure the rover can actually do what we want it to do in the next the next sol. Um, and actually, we make two activity plans, so we always plan two sols ahead, uh, just in case we miss some overpass or the rover has a problem. At least it's still got commands for something to do, not just twiddling its robot thumbs for mm -hmm. a day. Um, so then, then there's a second tactical shift where basically everything is just checked and checked and checked and then it gets uplinked uh, to the rover but those the, the timings of those are not consistent with earth days they revolve around when we get data back mm -hmm. uh, from mars so so the complexity there is that we also have what's called a, a strategic cycle which is much more kind of office hours um and that will happen every single day mm. there will be you know people from all the instrument teams and the kind of general rover science team will be either in person at the control center or connected remotely and we'll just talk about okay well this this is what we learned from these data that just arrived in that last tactical shift and here's what we should do for the next week we you know we keep track of the long-term science goals long-term objectives um figure out what to publish <laughs> what to announce you know there'll be discussions in that meeting like oh well, this is interesting so do we think it's life or not you know so that, that's where the the real meat of the science happens that's really uh, cool. That's really, uh, go on, John. No, I was just going to ask, how many sort of people are involved in this process? Are we talking of teams of like tens of people or hundreds of people? Yeah, I think it might be close to 100. Mm -hmm. So certainly at The Rock, um, on the science side, there'll be at least two people, probably several more from each instrument team. Yeah. Um, over time, it might be that there will be less participation in person people can connect remotely mm. because you know it's expensive to go live somewhere else and people have families and all kinds of <laughs> other real life complexities um so i think in person during the the first few weeks there'll be a lot of people there um and the, the remote participation will just become more the norm i think as the mission goes on but even then i mean if we think about all the surface platform instruments and the rover instruments um there's a big science community that will need to communicate yep. uh, on a daily basis. So probably a hundred people. And that's just on the science side, on the engineering side, there's a whole, you know, probably even larger team who are dealing yeah. with making sure the rover still functions. Yeah. Yeah. I think the image you normally get of what um, mission control must look like from like sci-fi movies is, you know, a room full of screens and computers and people running around lots I suppose for really long-term missions, you know, like a rover going around for months, if not years. It, yeah, I imagine you can't keep that level of intensity up. <laughs> people in mission control, you know, shouting at each other and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it must be quite a different process with, as you say, people getting the data more remotely or, mm. yeah, splitting off into smaller teams rather than it being, you know, an Apollo movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of a bit saddening to think that, some at some point it might get 
just routine. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing routine about this. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, imagine we get multiple mission extensions, and every single day there has to be a strategic meeting for the next I don't know five years. That's, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that's, when you think about it, okay, you're going to do the same thing mm-hmm. every day for five years to run a Mars rover. And that's extremely cool, but that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so there'll be there'll be shifts and people will take holiday and we'll have different people running different roles and stuff like that, you know, to try and change it up. Yeah. I think something we should uh, point out to the listeners is obviously this rover has landed, well, when it lands on the surface, as someone who's operating it, you don't see what it sees. So you can't you haven't got like a live stream view on a camera of what it's seeing. So how do you actually figure out where exactly it is and how are you going to drive it to a location where you're going to sample something? Yeah, well, that, that really lies in the, all the software tools. So there's a, there's a big set of software tools that exist and they allow you to do all kinds of planning and assessment. But most importantly, I think from the science point of view, is putting everything in context visually. Mm-hmm. So it has the ability to pull all the images taken by all the different cameras, you know, in, in one 3d environment that you can just kind of move around and navigate and see where things are. Um, there's, you know, there's a full software version of the, of the, the Rover model. So you can see where all the wheels are. If, if a wheel is stuck on a rock, the rock will be there because the Rover makes terrain models using mm. its cameras everywhere it goes. So we have a complete 3d environment to explore just like a computer game. Um, there's also something in the rock, um, kind of like a Mars yard with a Mars terrain simulator. And that has the, uh, like a, a ground test version of the Rover. And that lets us test out specific conditions that we might find the Rover in just to see what it does. You know, if put a rock here or put a sand, you know, area here and drive over it. What, how does it perform? And this can help us with operations plan. Is that yard in Aztec? Sorry. That one is actually in Turin. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is there going to be any like AI capabilities in it to avoid certain features or anything like that? Yeah, so it has it has autonomous navigation, um, which I suppose you can call AI. Yeah, yeah it's basically <laughs> yeah quite a, a highly uh, highly developed algorithm that lets you assess the environment, try and figure out the the risks. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that we, we send waypoints to the rover, we send it destinations and it tries to drive there. The, you know, the light time between Earth and Mars, um, uh, it's not obviously not constant, but at maximum it's, it's like half an hour. So it's kind of like, okay, it's not really something you can do real time. It makes a lot more sense and you can cover a lot more ground if the rover has the ability to navigate itself. Cruise um, control. <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cruise control except the motorway is covered in boulders and sand. <laughs> so i guess that's we should also point out that's why a flat area like um oxyoplanum is a good place for it to land really because obviously even small boulders can put it off but big craters would be a real issue for it if it's going to roll into one of those so yeah you want yeah. somewhere flat essentially yeah flat is is good um gives you the best chances of getting everywhere yeah, it's also safest for landing. Hmm. I guess um, I guess a lot of people might be aware quite how slowly these sort of, sort of things move, don't they? I suppose, what, what sort of distance do you think you'll cover over a couple of year period? Uh, in a couple of, yeah, I think in the nominal mission, 
it will be on the order of a few kilometers. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. so that's in the first. Um, yeah, the first Earth year. Okay. So I guess it's easy to picture these rovers sort of whizzing around, but really, I, guess, I suppose they really are just at a crawling pace, aren't they? Yeah, and that's mostly. I mean, it's not safer to go <laughs> much faster, but it's also a power constraint because mm -hmm. you need to use a lot of energy to go yeah. fast. Um, you also waste a bit more. So you can watch videos of, of the rover test bed, you know, roving around trying to autonomously navigate itself. Um, but you can see it's really just a, a crawling pace. It's a few centimeters yeah. per second. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing that for, you know, many, many hours a day, you can cover quite a lot, a lot of ground. Yeah. And are you at all fearful that the rover will become sentient and it'll actually start to control <laughs> you? <laughs> it has worried me a little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the most recent concern was when I discovered that it wasn't that we named it Rosalind Franklin. So, <laughs> <laughs> the name was selected for a competition. Um, One thing I was wondering is how, like, what what are the things it's specifically looking for as signs of life? Like, what would be the smoking gun? this mission would find? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's something that I'm not a super expert on, but I'm kind of aware of a few potential smoking guns. So I guess, um, I guess the first thing is that, so everybody knows um, there are lots of signs of organic molecules that just form naturally in the universe anyway. So that's kind of the first thing that suggests, so actually, okay, smoking guns may not be actually that smoking amino acids forming comets. You know? mm. So um, so one of the things that the MoMA instrument can do is look at chirality. And so that's basically the, the left-handed versus right-handedness of molecules. And it turns out that life prefers um, one distribution of chir chirality over the other. So if you see that offset, um, I don't think people are aware of any natural processes that are not associated with life that mm. would produce that, that difference. So that, I think that's one, I mean, that's specifically why moment does that measurement. Um, yeah, right. And the other, the other thing is, is carbon isotope ratios. I mean, that's, um, you know, that's, again, it's, it's all about kind of the, um, the, the physics of it. It's life is quite lazy and prefers the lighter isotopes because it's not, not as much energy to move them around. Um, and so if you see a, a carbon 12, 13 ratio, that's, consistent with terrestrial um, carbon isotope ratios. Mm. You know, water carbon in our bodies is, uh, has some bias because of that. That would be another smoking gun. Right. Um, those are the two that I'm most confident talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's a case then of there was life rather than this specific type of life. It's still a very much a, a generalized picture, what we'll see. But, but in terms of biosignatures, there are lots, there's a, a huge body of evidence um, that we kind of have to take piece by piece to build up a, a score, kind of a biosignature score. Um, there's been controversy in the past about whether some, you know, chemical or physical discoveries were caused by life or not. Uh, for example, in meteorites, you know, people mm -hmm. thought, oh, these minerals must have formed from an organic process, but mm -hmm. it turned out actually you can form these from just a regular physical process, no life involved. So I think that's... Uh, yeah, we, we, that's why we have to have these very detailed strategic meetings about, okay, is this really a good thing to say about these results? It's kind of on the border. 
Mm. So we have to be quantified and purposeful in interpreting all that. How do you know if a Martian fossil is a fossil or not? Yeah. For example. Um, what aspect or big science question from the mission would you say you're most excited about? Yeah, honestly, despite my comparative lack of understanding of the uh, detailed biosignatures, probably discovery of life. I mean, that's quite, a, <laughs> that's quite an irrefutably large objective. Um, yeah. The potential to be involved in a mission that, that really you know, digs deep and figures out if Mars ever hosted life. I mean, I think for me, the, the, the big meaning of that relates to the Drake equation because it pins down the number of planets in any star system where life could form independently. And given that we know that there are billions of planets in our galaxy alone, it's okay. Yep. I think that <laughs> will have the biggest impact. Yeah. So obviously you've been at home for a while now, and I hope for your sake that's allowed you to have more time to actually get involved in some of your research patterns. So is there anything you're researching at the moment that you find particularly interesting? Yeah, there are a few things which I still don't have any time for, but remain interesting. <laughs> um, so I think probably the, the one that's, <laughs> that's closest to being semi-finished is the best way to describe it. Um, so in, in Mars's history, there were many large impacts and um, some of them probably formed a debris disk afterwards. So a kind mm. of transient disk of rubble that was orbiting. Uh, and it was probably orbiting Mars's equator because dynamically that's where orbits tend to be stable um, over the long term. So um, also on Mars, there are some craters which have kind of an elliptical shape. Um, and generally it's thought that those form from angles, from impacts of very low angles. So they come in quite shallow and then they kind of, ex they scoop up this very long crater compared mm -hmm. to the normal round ones that we see on most planets. And um, that distribution of craters uh, is formed by stuff that came in um, potentially just randomly, or it could have come from something that allowed them to have a shallow angle. And this could be uh, a debris disk that was transient. So the idea then is to figure out how many of those craters that are elliptical on Mars mm. could have come from an orbit around Mars's equator mm. in its past. Um, so yeah, so we did some, did some work and tried to basically correlate the direction. So the azimuth of these craters, um, with the orbit plane that they would, they could have come from, mm -hmm. but also taking into account the fact that Mars's rotation pole might've changed over time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we know that volcanism has happened and various other things have happened. Mars's rotation axis might have shifted over time because mm -hmm. its mass distribution changes. So that means that okay, you can look for, if you find three craters that all have the same orbit plane, that doesn't necessarily mean they all came from the same orbit because if they happened at different times, Mars's rotation might have been in a different place. Mm. So then you have to put Mars's rotation pole at all the different places that it could have been and figure out how many craters align with that orbit. Mm. Anyway, the short story is we found a few places where there are, I don't know, to between two and five craters that line up um, with uh, a kind of ancient rotation pole. Mm. Um, so they so they would have formed from Mars's equator. Uh, they would have kind of spiraled inwards from a, a debris disk 
that could have been formed by a giant impact. That's cool. um, but, but it's a bit tricky because there's a lot of uncertainty. Mars has been mm. resurfaced a lot. This would have happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of degradation could have happened in mm. that time. There's some uncertainty on, on the azimuths of the crater. So if you're looking at an elliptical crater, but it's 4 billion years old, there's all mm. kinds of degraded parts mm. of, the, of the crater rim. So how do you know precisely which direction it came from? Mm -hmm. So there's some uncertainty in that. Um, but it's an interesting hypothesis. And it also extends to other planets. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, to what extent can you use the Moon and Mercury and places like that to try and test this as well? Yeah, so that's on the cards yeah. at some point. Would, uh, Unless Mars... somebody does it before me. <laughs> <laughs> would, uh, for, for Mars, would um, the moons of Mars affect this in any way? I mean, do we get a sense of how, when, assuming the Martian moons were captured, would that affect mm. the sort of orbital dynamics at all or are they completely different times? Well, the moons might be leftovers from that. Right, that's okay. the question, right? Yeah. Are they captured mm. asteroids or are they leftovers from a debris disk? And that's mm. really the question that spurred this project. Mm -hmm. Because okay. if we can show that there was a big debris disk yep. where multiple of these elliptical craters came from, then maybe, well, basically it adds support um, that Phobos and Deimos might have come from that. Yeah. And do you do you have any theory of which what size the impactor would have to be, and therefore potentially what crater might be the leftovers from what released the material in to form this disk? Yeah, uh, I mean it was pretty big, mm. <laughs> so yeah. So I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but there were only mm. a few really big impact basins on Mars that mm. could have produced a disk that size. So you know, like Hellas, for example. Oh, yeah, Argya, potentially, something like that. Right. But yeah. Some, yeah. So it would have been, yeah, something pretty huge. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Can you date these um, elliptical craters? That might be a naive question. I'm not really looking mm. But like, yeah. you said they're old. Can you tell if they're all the same age or different ages? Well, that's another part of the, part of the question because you don't, the, the way you date them is with counting craters on their ejector blankets, right? So, yeah. so you can constrain their age if you know the geologic unit that they're on, because that's, that's the maximum age they can be. Mm -hmm. um, but then you can pin down their age a bit more if you count the smaller craters on their ejector blankets. But on Mars, there's an atmosphere, there's other resurfacing, small crater populations are not necessarily um, you know, well-constrained mm -hmm. and then really not useful for really ancient stuff because the surface has been resurface many times for mm -hmm. ancient stuff so then how do you tell if you know how do you constrain age when something is really old when well, you need big craters because those are the things that populate the, the ancient part of the crater chronology curve so but there aren't any because these these elliptical craters are quite small themselves you know they're a few kilometers wide so yeah it's difficult to constrain their age i guess the size of those elliptical craters at least gives you some information about what the size of the material in this debris disk will have been because yeah 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 and most of them are would need would have needed to have impactors that are a bit smaller than phobos or deimos mm. and there are some papers that show that actually there are models that are, would be consistent with that because the the leftovers of a debris disk tend to be much bigger than the stuff that just fell back to Mars's surface mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can think about stuff that's, you know, up to about two kilometers or so wide, but most of it would have been 
500 meters, one kilometer or so. I like the idea of a 500 meter lump of rock being small. Tiny. Just <laughs> a little blip thrown into space. Yeah, yeah. Not much effect. <laughs> so let's say hypothetically there was this disc. Um, I, would the theory therefore be that all of it fell back down to Mars and that's why it's no longer there? Or Well, if it existed, then it doesn't now. So it went somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> uh, and if it went somewhere, where was that somewhere? Mm. Probably Mars. Yeah. <laughs> would would have Mars's atmosphere been thick enough for a lot of it to have burnt up? I suppose that must have a constraint on the size of the impactor as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So, if you look at the the speed that you need to be in a Mars orbit that's circular um, at a you know at a particular altitude. I don't know how fast you would need to be going to actually burn up. Mm. Certainly for big chunks, you know, they're way too big to burn up. Yeah. There's just not enough energy imparted to them to, you know, fragment and destroy them on the way down. Um, so actually uh, the question then is what was Mars's atmosphere like four billion years ago? Yeah. And that's another big part of it. So a separate section of this, of this work is to look at if you have, a particular impactor of size and density, whatever, and you throw it into an ancient Mars atmosphere, um, how much drag does it experience? And then what's the resulting angle of the impact? Because actually, maybe if there was a pre-disc, but there was a 500 millibar Mars atmosphere at the time that they impacted, they were coming in quite shallow, but then because of the atmospheric drag, they basically just mm -hmm. fell straight down much more slowly. Yeah. And then they wouldn't have produced any elliptical craters. Yeah. So lots of parameters. Yeah. Is it quite frustrating? Because it sounds like you've got a lot of um, uh, parameters that are still quite open-ended, where we don't really know the exact answer to it. Must be quite, yeah, it must be quite frustrating trying to pick out some of these assumptions to try and get to the bottom of, of some of your key questions. Yeah, yeah. I think, and you know, please stop me if this is too philosophical. I think there are really two approaches to the science and making discoveries. One of them is to take the parameter space of possibility and publish something that is not impossible mm -hmm. and call it a result. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. fine because that's the theory and it has credibility. Mm -hmm. And another way is to narrow down the parameter space and publish that narrowing and say, mm -hmm. well, look, now we know what's impossible. Yeah. Um, so there are kind of two sides to it. Um, and in this case, it's kind of in the middle because there are some things we can't narrow down but yeah. nobody's really reported on any of the boundaries yet. So yeah. Yeah. might as well do that. Yeah. Uh, not so surprise. Final question for you, Elliot, <laughs> is um, if you could be doing something else completely different, either in academia or outside of it, what would you want to do? Now, I think last time you chatted about drums, didn't you? Ah, uh, yes, I did. I think that's still true. <laughs> <laughs> You've been able to uh, keep up with drumming during lockdown, much to the annoyance of your neighbours. Uh, a little bit um so yeah i mean i, I have an electric kit at home so okay practice on. but actually lockdown has given us a chance to try uh you know remote rehearsals so mm. obviously video conferencing is is wonderful but the mm. the audio delay doesn't really work for rehearsals yeah. um but there are some bits of software that you can use that have a much lower latency and then okay. you, it's almost like you're in the same room so yeah i've been, yeah, doing so you've been managing to make it work then yeah yeah that's that cool but actually we um 
because I live in the Netherlands, we did actually have a gig. Uh, one of the groups I play in, we, we played at this rehearsal room, which had a stage in it. And they decided to um, basically have a kind of reopening gig just as the government lifted the local restrictions. Um, but they had to put in place all of these you know, procedures. So, of course, there's all those hand sanitizers and masks. And, and it actually really worked in our favor. It was one of those places where they give you a recording of your performance afterwards. And to keep everybody, you know, isolated, they put a Perspex box around the drum kit, <laughs> which which actually was really good for the sound quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've seen that, like, really kind of high-end gigs. Yeah. yeah the drum was, like, in his own box. And yeah, I'm pretty sure it. that's what Phil Collins used to do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, seen, I've seen very professional gigs where that's in place, but this was very much for medical purposes. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, but no, no yeah. chucking of your uh, of your drumsticks onto the audience then. <laughs> no, no, they just bounce back. I mean, the sad thing was that you know they had to have the social distancing in place, so mm. there were only like ten people in the room, and they were very sparsely distributed. <laughs> <laughs> the, the applause like was much more of a, a tepid trickle than usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just hand sanitizer <laughs> flying everywhere every time people clap yeah. their yeah. hands as well. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, just before we wrap up, I guess we haven't even told the listeners, but I'm actually going to be moving over to the Netherlands in February next year. Full disclaimer. Uh, no way! <laughs> well, yeah, we should yeah. work together. <laughs> yeah, we should. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit awkward. I, I, I don't want to get in contact with you, really. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, I'm going to be uh, working um, fairly closely with Elliot, I guess, just in a similar department. And... Uh, Yes, so I've been badgering Elliot, saying I have to jam with you when I go over because mm-hmm. I play bass guitar for the. So, so yeah, not yeah. actual jam, no. No, not actual jam. Well, we'll see. <laughs> so. I have, yeah, it's an option. I have that. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much, Elliot. By the way, if, he, yeah, if thank Ricky you. gets too much, put him in the perspex box. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> that's a good idea. Just put him in those. He'll you'll be fine. Yeah, it's, it's sanitary from a health and social perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Anyway, Elliot, thanks once again for, for joining us. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and hopefully we'll get to catch up uh, again with you uh, soon. And uh, we'll put some links and stuff to ExoMars and other bits and bobs uh, in, the, uh, in the episode description. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you to everyone listeners, listening as well. Uh, if you want more from us, we're on all the social media platforms everywhere from Facebook to uh, Instagram to Twitter. Uh, we're at Earth Solar System. The links again will be in the episode description. Uh, but until next week, thanks for listening. And we'll see you all again very soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.